This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1191. And today's show is entitled, I have no mic, but I must scream. And our podcast title is today, Sweet Podcast. Now, today on the show, I am Rob Jan, as usual, outside of the show. I don't know what the hell my name is. But we will be talking about Season 2 of Luke Cage, which dropped a week, two weeks ago now. And, uh, yeah, I've had a wonderful binge watching that on the old streaming services. We'll also have a look at a new Iron Man comic. They've rebooted the series yet again. And also a, a an extended e-novel that I've been enjoying on um, Amazon Kindle, uh, amongst other things today. Now, the first thing I want to say, and this is really kind of a placeholder because um, this news broke uh, just before the weekend and I really didn't uh, have enough time to sufficiently... Get a a grip upon the the whole thing, really. Uh, as genre fans will know, Harlan Ellison, the grandmaster writer of speculative fiction and everything else, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror, has passed away. Now, he was born in 1934, and well, from the volume of the outpouring of love for this fine writer, I'm guessing that his work and memory are going to continue to matter for more than just a brief time as his uh, self-proclaimed appetite uh, said for a brief time I was here and for a brief time I mattered and like many Star Trek fans I can't be aware of his writing via the outstanding classic Star Trek episode City on the Edge of Forever and was very bemused later to find out in detail what Harlan actually thought about the screened version In fact, it was following that story that I first discovered the dichotomy between a press release version of what the television creative process was and the reality of the multifaceted beastie. I'd seen adaptations of Harlan's scripted work on two excellent episodes of The Outer Limits, uh, Demon with a Glass Hand and Soldier, before then. I just didn't know he'd written them back in the 1960s. Um... And I actually think one of the first short stories of his I ever read was uh, Bloods Are Rover, which is adapted into uh, uh, A Boy and His Dog. Now, I don't think I ever approached reading one of Harlan Ellison's stories without wearing heavy hazard gloves because I, I knew I would be picking up a bag of expertly honed, razor-edged words and concepts that would frill, chill and challenge me every time. Dangerous visions indeed. His default setting of speaking power to authority was legendary and needed now more than ever. Yet another inspiration to pay forward. 
he was a controversial man. Um, lots to unpackage there, but I'm not going to do all, any of that today. I just want, still want to uh, just grasp the fact that we're living in a world without Harlan Ellison. Condolences to his family and many, many friends and to his extended family of readers and fans as well. I expect to see a contentiously generous, irrefutably brilliant, magnificently witty, controversial and cantankerous comet blaze across the metaphorical skies sometime soon. I think we should all take our little propeller hats off because there goes a genuine writer, Harlan Ellison. And I'm going to talk about him more, I think, over the coming weeks, uh, go into more detail because he just had such a massive career. There's so much work to consider. All right, I thought I'd play a David Bowie track here, actually. Um, Diamond Dogs is the album, which, as everyone knows, is kind of a default uh, 1984 soundscape. And this is kind of the opening track, um, Future Legend. So I thought this would be a good one to play after the passing of the great Harlan Ellison. I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that Zero-G on 3RRR is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the black stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere, anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 ha, with three exclamation marks. Just a brief track there, David Bowie, future legend. A little tiny little tribute to late great Harlan Ellison passed away for the weekend. Now, I also heard that um, a new composer has been appointed to the the Doctor Who series. Uh, it's a guy called Segan Akinola, and he's a British Nigerian musician. Done over over a dozen, two dozen um, soundtracks television and film and seems to be a good choice to follow in the footsteps musical composer Murray Gold one of the great contributors to Doctor Who soundscapes over the many years that he's been doing new Doctor Who now put down the baton and passed it on to Sagan Akinola now I actually rather liked Murray Gold's work on Doctor Who, an incredible contribution to the series, a massive body of work, maybe overused at times, but oh, if you listen to those CDs of the series soundtracks, they stand alone in many cases, and some of the music in there is just magnificent, comparable to any of the great soundtracks from genre music over the years. So farewell to him. And welcome to Segan Akinola. And I actually look forward to some new interpretations. Uh, one of the things that Doctor Who has often symbolised in the past is a f- more futuristic take on music, or at least um, our idea of what the future would be like, <laughs> particularly in the, uh, the 1960s and 70s. I remember the Doctor Who music there was extraordinarily space-agey. Uh, but we'll see how they go. I found a, a track online uh, from um, uh, a show called, uh, I think, One Way Up or 
and uh, he's got a track on this called Ascent, which um, feels a little bit like a conventional Doctor Who sound track anyway, but anyway, here we go. This is Kim Stanley Robinson, author of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Yeah, you certainly are, and... That was a track called Ascent from a soundtrack album, One Way Up. Sigan Akinola is the composer there, who is the new music maestro of the Doctor Who franchise. All right, now, speaking of franchises, copyright, patent pending, trademark, actually patent refused, no, (laughs) they wouldn't dare. Uh, we have a new Iron Man comic here, and this is Tony Stark, Iron Man, a completely new reboot of that series. Uh, well, I shouldn't say really reboot, they're just um, moving on from the previous writing and artistic teams. Bendis is out, now we've got uh, Dan Slott as the writer, and the artist is uh, Valerio Shitti, and the colour artist is Edgar Delgado, with letterer VCs Joe Caramagna, and the cover is by Alexander Lozana of this one. Uh, very characteristic cover there too, by the way, looking at that. Uh, Mr Stark there, thinking about something intensely with armoured action going on in the background. This is a joy to read this comic. I am so stoked about it. It is... Everything I want to see in an Iron Man comic. Um, It's past all of the unpleasantness of the second civil war that they had and the future, uh, sorry, the um, secret empire saga with Hydra and evil Cap ruling the world and we're back with some classic Tony Stark Inventing basically back to basics, which is important. You need to do that every now and then. I'm actually okay with the big crossover events, but um, not all of them, but you know, uh, to, enough to an extent that I'm usually reasonably happy. But it's nice to just get back to what he does best, which is building suits of armor and inventing amazing gadgets. Now, this particular storyline is actually one of those uh, neat little ideas where you get hooked into it via a person who's entering the orbit of the main characters. In this case, it's um, an older scientist who's an inventor who's had uh, run-ins with Stark before when Tony was uh, much, much younger and they were competing in small robot competitions uh, at sort of school, high school kind kind of level. Now, this guy is... um, the uh, leading light of a a small but um, not particularly successful robotics company called Bahang Robotics and this is Andy Bahang who's the scientist and this normally works out as the lead into a tale of uh, vengeance as the inventor will seek to make his presence known in the Stark world by attacking Stark Industries or or uh, the man himself, usually with some kind of um, powered suit or uh, enhanced formula that's made him into a... You know, the whole deal of the disgruntled former rival. We've seen that a lot of times in the movies and in television 
animated series and in comic books. But this time, it doesn't work out that way. Tony Stark comes to him and likes what he's doing and hires him to work in the uh, Stark Unlimited, the new company that he's formed. And, um, you know, this is the whole deal we've got. Mr. Stark has a new flying car. He's got Bethany Cave, an old um, uh, character from uh, the comics books run as his new chief of security. Uh, He's got (laughs) the robot that um, Ultron created, in fact, the bride of Ultron, Jocasta. And this is a, a humanoid silver robot of great penetrating artificial intelligence and um, she's actually the one who's been involved in a lot of other Marvel comics where she's uh, uh, been part of um, teams working on artificial intelligence's ethics and uh, hunting down a few robots too by the way Uh, but in this case here she's actually like the um, uh, the uh, chief robotic ethicist of Stark Unlimited which is so cool (laughs) Uh, they care about it so much now is there a lot of um, armoured action in this yeah of course there's so many suits that he's invented Um, as usual it's never quite an Iron Man comic unless you get to tour Tony Stark's lab uh, and see the Iron Legion of, of previous suits and this is so well worked out that uh there are suits in the background there and I looked at it and I had to look twice and even I couldn't identify them immediately and then I looked at one and I thought oh my god that is so penetratingly deep a reference one of the suits pictured in the background never even made it onto the television screen back in the day when Bill Bixby was doing the Incredible Hulk television series now I don't know if you know the story of that but they were developing ways of bringing other Marvel characters into the Hulk's television show they did bring Thor in at one stage uh, and there were other plans but um, and Iron Man was one of them they did some prototype footage as well uh, and in the background of one of the panels of this is um, the Bill Bixby Incredible Hulk Iron Man suit that they were working Working on, and I thought, oh, that is that is pretty hard to spot. Uh, other great references to the past in this: um, a certain big dragon appears. Yes, a, a very old fiend of Mr. Stark's, Fin Fang Foom. Uh, this, in this case, he's um, not entirely his old own dragon. What does Tony whip up to fight that? Well, of course, he's already built a Fin Fang Foom Buster, which is a glorious piece of hardware, and I just love to see it deployed. Plus, of course, he has his own brand-new suit, which um, riffs off, if I'm not mistaken, the the new model suit that we see in uh, Avengers Eternity... um, uh, Sorry, the uh, Avengers Infinity War movie. A little bit um, along those lines in parts especially the uh, the uh, extra weapons and stuff. There's more to it than meets the eye, being a Transformer robot, but uh, anyway, let's go back to the comic book, Stark Unlimited. This is um, Tony Stark, Iron Man, self-made man, a small story arc, written by Dan Slott with most of the artwork by uh, Valerio Shitti and covered by Alexander Lozano. What about the artwork in here? Well... I wanted to say that uh, that um, 
Valerio is one of the artists from the Guardians of the Galaxy comics. Uh, has done some Iron Man work before, as most um, Marvel artists have. Uh, worked on the Mighty Avengers and so on. And has this um, very, very solid, well-grounded style of doing the artwork. Oh, my God, are they uh, digital zip tones there? He says, just seeing it. Yes, they are. Oh, that takes me back a little bit. Uh, yeah, and he, he really captures the... Um, the uh, the style of the armor, but also there's a there's a, a quiet um, dynamicism to the uh, to the to the motion that he's managed to manages to put into every single panel. Um, yeah, I like the way that it, it's things spill over into the gutters and the borders of the uh, the story. Uh, I think that the colors have also been very well matched into this and because there's so many exotic inventions that they come up with and that's what i like they they throw 10 different ideas at you in five seconds of uh, walking into stark unlimited they've got talking cats and dogs <laughs> um, blaming each other for stealing the milk from the um the tea room fridge that kind of thing <laughs> let's just let's just not go there for the moment um yeah uh, of course it um also features uh the return of um colonel james rhodes who stark resurrected from the grave basically and that's a whole story that we talked about last time we reviewed an iron man comic so yeah for me this is everything i wanted in an iron man comic it is um the latest ones just come out uh, about a week ago and yeah if you are a fan you've already read it and are collecting it there's probably dozens of different covers floating around too but uh, yeah so happy <laughs> you can tell can't you what a kid I am oh dear uh, now actually uh, I think we'll go for a track here Mr Tony Stark by Curtis Wiggs from the eponymous symbol of the same name. That's what eponymous means. It's got nothing to do with Pony Stark. This is Neil Gaiman in the dangerous alphabet. Zero G comes last. Z waits alone and it's not for a thing. Yeah, Mr. Tony Stark there. In case you couldn't figure out the lyric, Curtis Wicks. Single coming out. Uh, well, it actually came out a while ago. That, that. Now, Rob Jan here with Zero G and we're rolling along here through a number of different genre tidbits as we roll up to the half-hour mark. Now, been reading, not surprisingly, <laughs> a series of books. This is the Surviving the Evacuation series by an author called Frank Tayel, T-A-Y-E-L-L. I've read 13 books in this series. And there's a 14th on the way. And it seems to actually be endless. And I'm actually cool with that. Um, I read them in Kindle form as um, e-books. Uh, Amazon was the uh, the vehicle of choice in this case. And they hooked me in with the first book being free. <laughs> How many times have you run into that? So, uh, Frank Tayel, I think, as far as I can tell, is a British writer and... He was um, very much engaged with the whole zombie holocaust subgenre, and he decided to write Surviving the Evacuation. So the first book of this is uh, called London, and it deals mostly with a character called Bill, 
who's um, a political apparatchik in uh, charge of spin doctoring, I suppose you could call it, uh, and gaming elections for the British government. He gets his leg broken accidentally at the very beginning of the news of a spreading zombie outbreak that's uh, heading out from the United States of America. So he actually gets to go home to his flat after he's been treated in hospital. So there's not a 28 days later deal or uh, walking dead deal or hobbling dead in this case where he's laid up in the hospital on a drip and then wakes up and it's all gone to gone pear-shaped. In this case, he's actually gone home and he's kind of um, kept in the loop, sort of, but uh, as things go get increasingly chaotic, the um, the friendly visits from the Prime Minister, who's actually um, uh, his uh, childhood friend, um, that's that slows down, and the uh, the food um, provision m- shuttles that they run to him stop until. Uh, He's just left by himself, even as the evacua- evacuation of the uh, the city of London proceeds, because they find that they have to uh, move everybody to protected areas uh, where there's farmland and where they can get them to via uh, um, motorways that are fenced off and safe from zombies and so on. There's a lot of stuff in here that reminds me of um, Max Brooks's World War Z, which of course has become a, a default. Um, sort of procedural manual for the whole thing, just as George Romero's Night of the Living Dead sort of set up the rules for a zombie apocalypse. This and his other uh, subsequent uh, movies, this picks up on that kind of procedural. And um, Bill is uh, actually involved in the um, evacuation planning as well. That was uh, one of the things that he came up with too. Uh, and that will play an increasingly important part in the subsequent books. Now, the first book is actually kind of a journal from Bill's point of view, and um, this is a, a story that um, also has a, a fair degree of political commentary to make too. Uh, not only the fact that Bill was working for the government, um, his brother, Sholto, is working for another government over in the US, but in a much more shadowy capacity. And you'll find out more of that as you read through the book. So if you like a, uh, a zombie apocalypse with a conspiracy thread running through it, this one's for you. Uh, another thing I found is that this book is really good in the procedural itself. Um, and I appreciate that because I'm very much a procedural person when it comes to reading. Um, you could have, in fact, you could have characters who were so shallow that you wouldn't get your toes wet if you walked it through them um, bare feet. And as long as you got the procedural really well done, I don't think I'd care too much. Oh, shock horror. <laughs> no, I'm not that bad. I do appreciate good characterizations. And the characterizations in this, let me say, are actually qu- quite excellent, especially since you get to see them develop or not. <laughs> because the uh, attrition rate is quite high uh, over the course of the, so far, 13 novels. But anyway, back to the procedural. uh, Things like logistics, um, food, water, which has to be obtained, fuel for vehicles, for cooking, for warmth, um, clothing, you know, not just important to try and uh, stop the zombie bites from getting through to you. uh, And you'd be surprised 
I wouldn't be surprised how many people try and make their own uh, armour out of uh, cricket hats and pads and all that sort of stuff. Um, But, you know, just for basically surviving horrendous British winters or uh, also once the clothing gets soaked in zombie gore, well, it's not really very nice to wear and and extremely dangerous too to you if you uh, get infected from the clothing. So you kind of uh, have to constantly be on the lookout for new clothes as well. Uh, as uh, the weather, of course, is a big factor in surviving this thing in, in England. Uh, and there are other illnesses that spring forth as well, which normally would be fairly treatable under normal circumstances with advanced medical help, but in this case, there's nothing. Uh, so you have to scavenge for medicines as well. It all actually reminds me a little bit of a game in, in some respects, like uh, that, that sort of detail that you'll find in a well-laid-out um, post-apocalyptic game. Of course, pretty much everybody's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, although Bill is actually a little bit luckier because he's been stuck alone in his flat and hasn't actually interacted or seen any loved ones getting killed, that kind of thing. Uh, the difficulty of, of travel for a man who's got a... a, a, a a leg that hasn't quite healed yet and doesn't heal quite properly either um, cannot be understated and actually affects the, the plot as he goes along. Uh, bicycles are obviously a, a pretty useful alternative in this case. Um, there is, of course, the usual stuff about weapons, uh, improvised or not. It's Britain, so there are not so many guns readily available to people, but um, uh, the military has been out in force and there's issues there as well. Uh, once some of the characters in some of the other stories manage to get to the Tower of London, they get pretty well kitted up from the uh, historical artefacts there. And of course, there's always tools and uh, um, sporting equipment like archery bows and so on. All of these things are, are quite well explored throughout the course of the books and you'd better be sure that you actually get into all of that over 13 books. There's a lot to do. I'm not exactly sure because they are e-books. It's hard, a little hard for me to tell um, how long they are because I never really notice as I'm reading them the page count. I think something, you know, a couple of hundred each. Uh, some of them would probably read as... Um, you probably look at those if you're buying them as paperbacks and think, that's a little short, isn't it? Or maybe, you know, but I haven't actually seen them in the paperbacks on the shelves yet. Uh, wherever good um, zombie holocaust books are uh, sold, I haven't run into them yet, but I suppose I'll, I will eventually. But I'm actually quite happy to read them on the uh, in the e-book format. Although, of course, that would be rather difficult, as the author points out, trying, just trying to charge up your multitude of devices or any device at all in this situation. Rather difficult, unless you have access to a generator or solar power, which, of course, you do, because this is a, these books are written in the 21st century and uh, there are ways and means. It's also a very um, a series of books that gets into family. Um, the likelihood of actually having a surviving family member is not high in this story. Uh, so family often is basically the people who you end up um, huddled together in uh, in a ruined building together with um, or travelling with. Uh, so you sort of make your own families up as you go along. But there are a few people who are around. There are a few twists on that. There are quite um, well laid, I thought. Uh, we also get a nuclear war flown, thrown into the mix just to make things uh, a little hotter. Uh, and something I haven't seen too often. Um, although the police are not really all that trusted, the surviving police, 
because um, there were some pretty harsh things done along the way, let's say. Uh, we actually get into some um, issues about what a murder investigation would entail after a zombie apocalypse. Um, obviously, it's easy to hide deaths as uh, accidental or down to the uh, the zombies, but uh, what if they're actual murders? So there's some interesting post-apocalyptic CSI in, in the story. Uh, of course, um, other elements uh, intrude, like uh, society. Can you still form a functioning society? Uh, and it, the, the author's um, take on this is, yes, you should try and do that because we'll all hang together or hang separately, assuredly, and under the, uh, the onslaught of the undead. Um, they even get into whether or not elections would be an issue for such a community. And I thought, appreciated that. It was nice to see some uh, some thoughts about democracy whilst the uh, the demons are crazy at the same time i thought it was way more interesting than the television version of the novel the last ship uh, although the original novel of that let me tell you is is butte uh, and it's more nuanced than the walking dead certainly uh, a reminiscent of the slightly mannered british apocalypses of uh, john Wyndham and john christopher if you're familiar with day of the triffids and uh, um, the Death of Grass, for example, from the 1950s and 60s, those sort of books. So, again, I kind of felt a little bit nostalgic for that. It's Frank Tales Surviving the Evacuation series. It's in 13 books. Um, if you go the way that I went, you get the first book free, so you can go sort of sample it as an e-book. Uh, there is a 14th book on the way. Oh, yes. Uh, Frank Tales has also written... Um, a couple of books called Here We Stand, which are American spin-offs from this um, story, which I didn't know about until I just read about it now, so I'll have to chase them up too. Uh, and he's got other post-apocalyptic books as well, uh, including ones that do deal with um, murder investigations after all these sorts of things have happened. So obviously it's gotten into his head, so to speak, uh, that, that, that particular trope. And good on him too. That's a slightly different angle from what I usually see. Surviving the Evacuation Series by Frank T-A-Y-E-L-L. Okay, now, um, let's lead in with a track here from the Luke Cage series, Season 2. Uh, and this is um, by William Griffin, Adrian Jung, and Ali Shaheed Mohammed, and it's King's Paradise. And it's from the Luke Cage Season 2 soundtrack. Hi, I'm George Takei, and I play Admiral Sulu in Star Trek. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Admiral? Hey, a guy can dream, can't he? <laughs> oh, here you go. We were getting a bit cagey there with King's Paradise. William Griffin, Adrian Younger, and Ali Shaheed Mohammed from the Luke Cage Season 2 original soundtrack album. And, of course, Luke Cage as a television show on Netflix is, or a streaming show at least, is known for its really cool music. Now, the new season of this Marvel Comics-derived show dropped on Netflix on June the 22nd, so not too long ago in the past. Um, I finished binge-watching it on the weekend and thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it's still got its showrunner of uh, Chio Hudari Koka, um, music journalist turned into a television writer, producer and director. Uh, worked on uh, NCIS Los Angeles, Southland, uh, Ray Donovan, 
and wrote the film for the 2009 biographical film Notorious and of course was heavily involved in the first season of Luke Cage. Uh, it's... Um, Seems like more than the second season. There are 13 episodes in here. Because uh, Luke Cage, the character, has also crossed over on the Jessica Jones show and the Defenders. and So it's a little bit more uh, established here. Um, and it feels like the music for this season as well is trending a bit more noirish gumshoe private eye, which is kind of apt given the whole hero for hire shtick that they're running in this. Um, and then there's the uh, the new villain, Bushmaster, which uh, took me off guard with a bit of the old ultraviolence that wouldn't have looked out of place on, on say, the uh, the Preacher series over on Stan. I have been hugely impressed with the way Alfred Woodard is playing the quite nuanced villain Mariah Dillard. Pardon me, Stokes. Um, yes, she's um, pretty formidable here, and not in a not in a cliched way. There's a whole lot to be unpacked with her character, but. To the show. Mike Coulter once play again plays Luke Cage as power man, hero for hire in this case. Uh, that develops over the course of this series. Um, there's a backlash against him uh, on the streets um, and amongst the criminal elements. They've even named a drug after him, which he's not real happy about. Um, we develop more of his family interests. His father's uh, a preacher and even gives sermons that include the subject of uh, Luke Cage. Uh, the whole thing's gotten a bit out of hand, really. Um, he's got a guy called DW who follows him around um, taking social media videos and selling T-shirts and caps and, uh, <laughs> you know, when he patrols the neighbourhood, which is, of course, is Harlem, he gets free coffee from... Uh, grateful shopkeepers, um, although that doesn't stop um, his landlord from doubling the rent on the uh, <laughs> on the barbershop where he hangs out, or the insurance for that matter. Think about the sponsorship possibilities anyway. Uh, and it's no wonder that amongst all of this, um, Luke kind of loses his moral compass in this story, quite literally as well um, as figuratively too, and spiritually. Um, all sorts of things make him uh, spin out a little bit in this particular series of the show. Um, Alfrey Woodard, as I've said before, great performance from her uh, as um, Mariah, the council woman who's turned into a nightclub owner and is actually vying for the title of Queen of Harlem and also has greater ambitions to become boss of bosses in um, the New York City as well, beyond that. Uh, she, the character, the actress doesn't always play Mariah as super confident. Sometimes you can definitely see her making it up as she goes along. Uh, we get a lot of background on the character throughout this series and all credit to the writers as they play with that, giving us uh, an understanding of her and realising at the same time that understanding isn't approval but we find out why she reacts the way she does to certain things. She is an unreliable narrator as well of her own story, so take everything that she says with a grain of salt. And I just thought that this is a performance that, that uh, matches some of the best that I've seen on television. She 
is reaches some levels that um, oh, I mean, it's just little things like she never seems to um, be entirely still in any scene that she's in, which is is quite a good actorly trick if you want to steal a scene. But um, she's always got some little tick, or she's in motion in some way, uh, or or having a, an emotion that's transformed into physicality, sometimes quite subtly. So, all credit to her. She makes a very good foil for Luke Cage, who is, of course, stuck in that role of being the hero, but he also has a lot of nuance in this too, as he comes to terms with everything and struggles with kind of being another contender for boss of Harlem himself. And that causes all sorts of ramifications. Now, Luke Cage has been in other teams, in another team since uh, this season came into being and so he's a little bit more used to working with people uh people like uh misty knight the police detective who lost her arm in uh, previous adventures of luke cage um played by simone missick whose husband actually is also a character in uh, in this uh, series as well there's a, a criminal called cockroach and uh, missick's um husband plays him which is kind of cool <laughs> when you think about it because they do have some rather unpleasant interactions misty of course uh has been through physiotherapy and um and counseling and so on but nevertheless she still lost one arm in the line of duty and she's got a lot of things to work through in regards to that uh, basically the police department has left her alone with a medal and a bottle and uh part pension which she could uh, struggle with for the rest of her life if she wanted to go down that route but she doesn't uh, because that wouldn't work out too well for the future of partners of the story and um, as I said Luke's been in a team now and uh, that allows him and Misty to interact on a on a level that's um that develops throughout the season you think yeah this i can i can get this there is a nice little tussle about who is actually whose sidekick too <laughs> as as um as luke cage says in the the trailer for uh, this series what's well, my show <laughs> we're getting quite a bit meta there and talking about um uh metal uh, she will get a bionic arm in the course of this series as you as you know in the comic books um, she has a very fancy stark technology arm not quite available in this case but um you know the ran tech is pretty cool too uh now the other characters in here theo rossi reprises his um uh hernan shades alvarez role um and as we already know, he's become uh, Mariah's lover and gangster advisor. Very complex relationship and even more complicated as it develops throughout the show. I won't spoil that for you, but there's a lot going on in that guy's head. Um, and he's, he plays it quite well, too. He, he just uh, has the moments, knows what he's doing. And at times I'm feeling like I'm watching an episode, uh, sorry, a Godfather movie. Um, some of the stuff is so cool that they do in this. Uh, Gabrielle Dennis is a new character, or newish character, Tilda Johnson. Um, she's actually a, com a character from the comic books, and I won't go there because it would spoil um, uh, her story arc. So maybe don't look her up in the, uh, in the Marvel dictionary or online or whatever. Uh, we've also got um, Mustafa Shakir playing John Bushmaster McIver. Um, now, this character is... Uh, 
yet another in the role in the line of complicated Marvel villains that we have actually had. People say, oh, some of the Marvel villains are not all that complex. No, I differ with that now. We've got quite a few interesting ones here, and this one is no exception. Um, he, the actor himself, um, auditioned for the roles of Black Lightning in the uh, the DC comic book show, and also uh, as one of the characters in Black Panther. But he didn't get those. But he was an unnamed extra in the 2000 Shaft movie. Um, he has an interesting, ba- as interesting a backstory as Killmonger in the um, Black Panther, by the way, and is a particularly brutal fella. Um, fairly um, fast moving too, and of course, as you know, he will be pitted against Luke Cage in the course of the story. All right, now uh, this is a, a Marvel series that. That, that takes up it, the uh, the burden, as it were, of interacting with the other Marvel shows. So we do get Colleen Wing appearing, uh, and uh, Finn Jones as Danny Rand, um, as Iron Fist. And I know that people have an issue with the Iron Fist character. I have many too, in the way that it's depicted and portrayed, and and the way it's worked out in uh, Iron Fist's own series. I actually thought he was a much more interesting character when included in the Defenders mix. Uh, and it actually lifts things a little. It's a good gear change when Danny Rand walks in through the door of the, of the barbershop in this show. Uh, he's gotten smarter. He seems more um, settled. He says, I'm still. Power comes from stillness. And a lot more self-aware too. In fact, he's a lot less of a dick than he has been before. Uh, and you know, word on the street is that this is where Iron Fist begins to come into his own as the... Well, as as the the, the the team up partner for um, Luke Cage, and you know what? I actually think they're they're onto something there. Uh, Rosario Dawson appears again as Claire Temple, and again contributes heavily to the story arc, as she has done to all of the other Marvel series as well. You really do need someone to uh, to doctor your uh, superheroes after all the fights they get into. By the way, the fights in this season play to all the literal strengths of the Luke Cage character. Uh, And as I said, he's been teaming up with other people, so they handle that a lot better here this time. And the fights with Bushmaster are just absolutely scarifying. (laughs) Okay, now... There are some tropes in this show that uh, they peddle that you just have to sort of pass by, or not, if you're picky, um, like fires inside inside rooms that don't kill everyone with the smoke immediately. That's an old one, isn't it? Uh, people having conferences in public places without anyone seeming to hear what they're saying or filming them with their phones. Um, although poor old Luke Cage does get filmed quite a bit in this um, thing for social media. Uh, there's an Asian hatchet gang. Uh, well, that's all right. I'm all right for a bit of kung fu hustling. Um, they make up for all of these, for, the, for some of the cliches, when they do things like uh, do a focus upon um, a domestic violence incident that is so intense. It had me on the edge of the seat um, and just wincing as the uh, as it unfolded and you're thinking oh no no there were actually a lot of moments like that and um, these plugged into some some quite strong dialogue that, uh, that that carried the 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 action into other realms um, so yeah I'm still actually um, quite upset by the domestic violence scene so that may be a trigger warning um, if you want to take it that way um, Lucy Liu actually invent, in, in, in actually um, directed the first episode of um, of Luke Cage, 
season two, uh, which I kind of um, thought was a cool thing. You know, here she is, that wonderful action star doing her own direction here. Each episode is named after a Pete Rock and CL Smooth song, which I kind of thought was interesting, and I might play a few of those um, as we go along. Uh, but um, to go out from the show... Oh, yes, I should mention that the Easter eggs in this uh, new series are just as complicated and uh, and actually beyond me in some cases. There's a, a few ones that I automatically got, but um, others, well, not so much. Um uh, for example, the song I'll go out with today, which is Night Nurse um, by Gregory Isaacs uh, from his album Reggae Gold, um, is a, uh, a reference to the fact that Claire Temple was once actually um, partly written as a character called Night Nurse from the Marvel Comics universe. They rewrote it for uh, a Claire Temple character. Um, so, you know, they kind of do that kind of thing all the time in this. The music is always highly relevant to the plot. In fact, there's one of the characters that actually gets to sum up uh, some of the events of the film with a song played at the piano. And I'm just thinking, is this a strange musical interlude? Wait a minute, she's actually singing about what's happened. And it's not done in a naff way. It just uh, comes in as a natural segue and you think, oh, that's very done. Well done. Uh, Now, the the Easter egg I actually like the most uh, when Luke's fighting in a theatre, and this is kind of a little bit of a spoiler, but that's all right, it goes by, blink and you'll miss it. Um, he's fighting in a theatre, which is, has resonance for the um, the comic book series of Luke Cage. He often hangs around theatres. Um, he bashes through a wall, and there's two posters on it. There's uh, the Crimson Skull and um, mur- A Murder in Harlem. The Crimson Skull is one of those lost movies from 1922. Uh, it's a, um, a city that's... Uh, completely inhabited by African-Americans. And so, you know, you've got the whole Harlem thing going. But the other poster, 1935's A Murder in Harlem, that's about a black night watchman who gets framed for the murder of a white woman. Um, And I'll spoil it because it's 1935, but it turns out it's actually um, uh, a white man who's uh, responsible for it. So, you know, in that one so well-chosen little moment, um, the, the Easter eggs are strong in this show. So, yeah, I um, have been very much enjoying Luke Cage Season 2. It's uh, the usual Netflix sort of uh, high-violence series, but uh, it is what it is. It's a street-level show, and that's where they go with it. Uh, Check it out on Netflix. That's about it for Zero G today. Uh, We'll go with Night Nurse by Gregory Isaacs from the Reggae Gold album. And... um, uh, we will play some more tracks from Luke Cage too because the music is so good throughout the show as we go along. Coming up next is Astral Glamour and Kate Reed with uh, that show coming up after this track. Thanks a lot. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.